welcome to episode six of the A to Z of Archaeology podcast. Um, this week's episode is Forensic Archaeology and I'm Alice. I'm Nikki. I'm Jenny. Um, before we start today's episode, we thought it'd probably be best to do a quick disclaimer. Um, I'm going to read this from my notes. Uh, this episode of the podcast will be discussing human remains and specific cases, both in terms of domestic homicide investigations and also international disaster and conflict events. This information given will in many cases not be particularly graphic and furthermore, no specific names will be stated in terms of victims. However, if you believe that any of this information may cause you distress, please do not listen to this episode of the podcast. Okay, <laughs> that was my big disclaimer. It's a very, very cheery episode. I know, it's... It's, mm. it's yeah. so, it's just, it's so difficult because it's such a horrible subject, but it's so interesting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's, this is why I want it to be my job, but it's going to be a <laughs> <rim> job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fun. Yeah, I also want to say quickly that a lot of this information comes from the book, The Handbook of Forensic Anthropology and Archaeology. It will be referenced in the description of this episode, but I just don't want them to sue me. So please apply <laughs> their book. It's very good. It's very interesting. So um, what is forensic archaeology? Um, well, in a lot of cases, forensic um, archaeology and forensic anthropology can be quite similar. Um, they're quite intertwined not so much in the UK they're quite distinct in the UK like the differences but especially in like America you know in universities the archaeology and anthropology departments are usually like the same mm. it's quite but they usually have a role in you know international criminal tribunals and also in more recently in domestic cases so in terms of forensic archaeology they can work on you know actual excavating like burials or um, mass graves, and they can use, you know, archaeological techniques, GPS, um, stri uh, like stratigraphic layers to figure out like the events that occurred. And in terms of forensic anthropology, they're more in terms of the actual skeletal remains of individuals. They can figure out, you know, cause of death sometimes, not all the time, but, um, and also, especially in disaster response, they can help try and identify individuals as well. Yeah. Return them home, basically. So, as I said, um, forensic archaeology and anthropology can be used in domestic homicide situations. Um, so in the UK and abroad as well. Um, has anyone got any examples of that? Um, I have a few case studies. Uh, because forensic archaeology is often used to assist in the recovery of missing persons. And when someone goes missing, they're generally found within about a five mile radius of where they've last been seen. Mm -hmm. So that can often just become an excavation site for them. So yeah, in one case, uh, they found several blood soaked duffel bags in a car wash. This was in America somewhere. Right. Um, and they like discovered that they'd been used to hold dismembered remains and the perpetrators mm -hmm. were convicted on that evidence and they confessed to the crime and they gave up the location of the remains. But because they were all of them on quite a lot of alcohol and drugs when they did the crime, it took about 10 years for the police to actually be able to find the body because <laughs> they were looking in the area and they just couldn't find it because the area was the wrong area. Mm -hmm. So eventually, like I said, after 10 years of the actual crime being committed, they called in the forensic archaeologists who were like, right, we're just going to set up a full scale investigation. We're going to dig up the whole area. 
took them three weeks of digging on this hillside. Uh, but they eventually found the woman and returned her to her family and finally got the closure that they needed. Oh, that's good. So that's, good. that's an example of it being very successful and then getting what they wanted. Mm, yeah, there's definitely cases of them not being successful. There's one I've got here. Um, it was a cold case. Um, a woman and her child disappeared in 1976 and there was sort of like a local legend that she'd been buried in this disused quarry um, so they literally dug up the entire quarry <laughs> it was excavated archaeologically and it was sort of like sectioned um, but they did the whole thing and basically the outcome of that was that they determined that they were not deposited in the giant quarry <laughs> That they dug, they, there was thirty-seven thousand tons of material moved. Oh my god! I wow. know. Imagine. So sometimes it can just be used to determine that a place wasn't, you know, yeah. involved in a crime. But yeah, I have another one where it wasn't successful, but they used ground penetrating radar. Mm. Thought they'd found them. Um, it was in the summer of nineteen seventy-nine, and a ten-year-old boy disappeared from a public swimming pool in Massachusetts less than 100 yards away from his family home. There's people around, it's very public. And the neighborhood was like vigorously searched for days, um, but the body was never found until 2004, when the forensic archeologist decided to use ground penetrating radar to examine an area that had gotten a lot of interest from the police sniffer dogs. Mm -hmm. um, and this showed several anomalies like on the GPR, but uh, then they began the excavation of the area. It took them a few weeks, but they never found the body. And to this day, they're still looking into new techniques that they can use to find him. Mm -hmm. So, fingers crossed. Yeah, this is interesting as well. The accidental recovery of human remains and how forensic archaeology and anthropology is involved in that. Um, so, for example, um, in one instance, building workers came across part of a human skeleton, the skull and torso, um, in a wasteland that was being redeveloped. The rest of the body appeared to be buried, but it had in fact been <laughs> severed by the earth moving machine used to landscape the site, oh, which was very grim. <laughs> um, fortunately, the upper torso retained a pacemaker with a reference number that could be used to identify the individual, which I think is just, it's wonderful. It's, so, it's just so clever. Yeah, it's very good. And then there's quite a famous one i think especially if you've heard about bog bodies um when they discovered the remains of the linda woman <laughs> someone confessed because he had um buried his wife's remain in the bog oh my god they found the linda woman he got spooked confessed to his wife's murder and then they dated the woman to be in roman times and he was like oh shit <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't me I didn't kill my wife and they were like you've just confessed to killing your wife and like putting her in this bog to this justice day, for her remains because but... some Roman woman got buried there yeah exactly he, he, like, did got they touch the bog and find her no they, they, they she still hasn't been found but she must be there which is very grim but yeah so yeah sometimes the discovery of archaeological remains can lead to uh criminal conviction as well. I think they've tried to use forensic archaeology um, for the Moors murders victims mm. as well. Um, but I think there's still missing one mm. victim currently. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They can't find him. And obviously now everybody is 
who knew is obviously dead. Yeah. So they probably will never find them. Maybe the future archaeologists will find him. Yeah, hopefully. It's just a shame because I think <clears throat> recovering a, a body is just such a, a fundamental part of closure for families. Mm-hmm. Like I know that they use that during Grenfell that was really important to a lot of people was being able to recover these these remains and that was you um done through forensic archaeology and obviously the the site at Grenfell was so destroyed that there are um, there are stories of people having to to sieve remains in order to find like, just the piece of a jawbone that's awful yeah but I suppose that does move us on to sort of looking at forensic archaeology and anthropology within disaster response as well. So obviously Grenfell is a, a big example of that and a very recent example. Um, but obviously there are other examples. I think you said you had something on the use during 9-11, did you? Yeah, that was how they they looked at a lot of remains because, you know, they used dogs initially to try and find um, I think they're technically looking for survivors, but obviously the, the chances were so slim. They were basically body recovery dogs. Mm-hmm. And then once that failed, because um, the use of, you know, like the fire in that case as well, basically made it so that forensic archaeology was the only way to get those remains back. Mm-hmm. And I think as well, it was so useful, not just for the families in 9-11 in particular, but I think the forensic archaeology and the recovery of those remains and clearing that area was so helpful for like for America in general I suppose and the whole world because that was such a, a shocking event. Yeah um, I've also got quite a big example here I don't know we were quite young when this happened but does anyone remember the the Asian tsunami it's also called the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004. Yes. Yeah um, so Basically, this tsunami affected 18 countries. Of the fatalities, almost half were in Indonesia, and holidaymakers from over 40 countries were involved. Um, the tsunami was the most devastating in history, claiming the lives of over 250,000 individuals, with a further 40,000 missing and millions rendered homeless or displaced. Uh, in Thailand, over half the fatalities were foreign tourists. So. Basically, because they were foreign tourists, often from Western countries, the main um, sort of way of identifying the bodies was like comparing anti-mortem and post-mortem dental records. So that's how they did it. So um, between January and March 2005, approximately 73% of the identifications of um, Western tourists were achieved through dental comparisons. But obviously, this was not as successful with the actual like individuals from Thailand because they didn't yeah. have such extensive dental records, so that was not as successful. But does does then the use of dental records lead more to anthropology than archaeology? Yeah, definitely, I would say so. It's, I mean, I would say you can do both, really, can't you? But I would say that the main job of the archaeologist is to actually excavate the area and then the job of the anthropologist is to like look at the the remains and use that to identify individuals 
stuff like that. So when they're looking at like the objects that are found with the body or with remains, is that the anthropologist or is that the archaeologist? Because in my mind that falls more into archaeology, but I don't really know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's both. I mean, it could be archaeologists because when they're excavating, they can use the like grave goods that's with them to help identify individuals as well. But that's also part of the anthropology as well. I think I've got some examples here, actually. Um, this is another big thing. There's been like multiple organizations sort of born out of this. Um, the, there has been multiple mass grave exhumations in the territory, territory of the former Yugoslavia, obviously during 1991 to 1999. There was quite a lot of conflict in the area of the former Yugoslavia. Um, the hardest and most complex situation was in Bosnia and Herzegovina. I would like to point out that that is the best country name ever, first and foremost. <laughs> I love saying Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's so <laughs> nice to say. But um, yeah, anyway, uh, during the wars, over 140,000 people died and over 30,000 individuals were reported missing. So organisations that have formed forensic teams around this include the International Commission on Missing Persons, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and the European Law and Justice Mission. And they also have local forensic teams as well. But that's a big part, like that's, they are quite big organisations now. Um, so they sort of use um, like locally collected information and also archaeological techniques as well, such as electric, electronic distance measuring and total stations mm. to sort of figure out where the mass graves might be. And then they um, excavate and I try and identify the individuals. So, um, so are those international bodies then? Yes. Yeah. Well, they do have local teams as well, but the yeah most of them are international bodies they work i know the icmp now works across the world basically they have teams in like iraq and south america i think as well so they have they work across the world basically um but yeah so um an example of this is a mass grave at i'm probably going to pronounce this wrong rudnika um Forensic archaeologists use techniques such as photo documentation, uh, labelling of stratigraphic layers and also total stations to accurately survey all the sites and features and contexts, including the position of body parts and associated evidence. So basically they can use that to just try and identify individuals. And there's definitely a case here. Um, I think it was, yeah, during like a mass grave that occurred during a, a conflict in Kosovo. Um, archaeologists were able to determine that like a mechanical digger was used to like create the mass grave which is quite grim but it, it does help in figuring out what happened. Is that information also used for like conviction of war crimes and crimes against humanity and stuff? Yeah it can be and that's one of the like there's quite a few ethical questions around like doing this sort of job it can be used to convict obviously in domestic cases and in like criminal tribunals um so one of the questions is if practitioners so forensic archaeologists and anthropologists find the death penalty like abhorrent they can't they don't agree with it 
Is it ethical for them to engage in work in countries in which their findings may lead to the death penalty for any convicted individuals? So I don't know what you guys think about that, but it's it's quite an interesting question. Are they allowed to like? Are they allowed to say no? I don't want to work this one. Yeah, I think so. They just wouldn't get paid for it. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, it's like it depends what the view. Like personally, I don't think I could work. But it's then it's like you're not getting justice for the individuals that have been affected as well. So it's quite a difficult question because I I don't agree with the death penalty, and I wouldn't want anyone to get the death penalty because of something I've found. But at the same time, then they're not like people aren't getting justice for what's happened. Either way, there's like a level of guilt that goes with it. Yeah, it's quite a difficult one. Yeah, I wouldn't even know. I can't even think about whether or not I would do it. Mm. Yeah, it's a really difficult one. There's another like quite difficult question here. Should the use of human remains be used in research? And should images of human remains be published? For example, recently a Dutch forensic anthropologist was fired following his decision to show images of human remains resulting from the aviation disaster of flight MH17. What do you think about that? I think this sort of comes under the broad umbrella of just presenting human remains in general. Mm -hmm. So the debate around whether or not you should present archaeological human remains. Mm -hmm. um, I think from what I know about um, Native American remains from the 90s in particular in America um, there was a law passed that said that you couldn't display human remains anymore and I think that law in particular came about because um, these remains that were being displayed you know their their descendants were still alive like they had um, you know great-grandchildren that were you know still very much alive and this was a it was a, a like a sort of a reminder of everything that happened mm -hmm. and I think you know archaeological remains are one thing but if it's a if it's someone with living relatives living ancestors who have gone through this horrible traumatic event to have their their ancestors and their family reduced to a spectacle mm -hmm. I just think is it's just so wrong even photographs you know people wikipedia articles you know people they look through the photos don't they they look they look for that spectacle and that sort of mm -hmm. that awe or the the repulsion that comes with it. Yeah. yeah you're right. Well, the reason that you're showing the photo is it like mm. for gratuity or is it for education? Yeah, I was going to say, what about like educational books? Because in the handbook of forensic anthropology and archaeology that I've been reading, there is quite a lot of human remains shown, particularly yeah. in um, the case of the the tsunami one they had quite yeah quite intense pictures yeah. to look at so is it different when it's for academic purposes I think, I think it's different definitely hmm. but I think as well academic resources tend to be kind of they're harder to, to come by for the general public yeah. you know you were only able to take out that book because we're a member of the University of Manchester library so we could you could use that library I bought it from Amazon so yes, yeah ah, that's a different thing then isn't it mm. like that's that's technically that's it's almost the same as publishing that on wikipedia i guess in that in that sense yeah so do you guys think that human remains should be used in research then 
or with consent right yeah hmm. consent from who though the, the relatives I suppose from the individual from the relatives yeah okay no because that's also a tricky question you can say it is quite difficult but in terms of the display of human remains going back to that that's like something I think forensic archaeologists and anthropologists especially if they're abroad have to take into consideration they have to take into consideration the sort of how the remains need to be treated by the specific communities that they're in so obviously in western countries a lot of the time physical contact with the dead is seen as something that you shouldn't do that would be odd and weird i couldn't think of doing that personally but in some muslim societies there's a close contact with the body of the deceased which must be washed by a family member before burial so obviously there's quite a lot of you need to be very conscious i think of the different things that different communities do and also as going back to the display of human remains obviously um in some countries that's considered terrible but um for example in the all saints cemetery chapel in czechia um, they openly display human remains it's considered something that they do so i think it's different for everyone really isn't it yeah i think i think it depends on what sort of whose whose gaze it is like what perspective are they being shown from so i know that there, there were lots and lots of mass graves in cambodia during the khmer rouge atrocities that they committed um and there are photos of just stacks and stacks of skulls mm -hmm. um and that is that is purely sensational yeah that those they don't need to be displayed in that way i think if they they had pictures of the victims you know their their, their faces and who they were would be far more it would it would mean more to people i think it's like with the um the the holocaust memorial museum in berlin where they they've displayed the huge huge number of victims through their their shoes by placing all their shoes in the museum so i think that you can you can show that something has happened without the use of the remains um if it's that particular country and their custom i think it you know that that obviously is something that they need to do and that's how they if you think about their dead and how they treat their dead once they've died but in the west i think because we have such a dissociation between the living and the dead if it's something that's you know it's a western resource and they're putting these pictures in or these um displays these remains are being displayed i think that from our perspective i feel like they're definitely more there to shock people yeah Definitely. And I think using human, like using people's personal items, humanizes them a bit more. Mm. And that, I think, creates more of an emotional response than just looking at bones or bodies. Yeah, there's a big difference between just putting a skeleton in a box or in a picture and actually being respectful to that individual, I think. Has anyone else got anything else they want to add? I feel like we've covered everything. Yeah, I do want to add in a fun fact. That I found out when reading about forensic anthropology. So there's like a massive section in this handbook um, of just forensic anthropology. I thought it would be a bit dense for the podcast because <laughs> it's all like sciencey shit. But um, I found it really interesting. Apparently, in North America, um, bear paws and human hands and feet have been shown to exhibit similarities that may lead to confusion. 
So apparently, like human skeleton hands and feet look exactly yeah, like their paws. <laughs> it's a thing That's so weird. Yeah. And also, apparently, the third pedal proximal phalanx of a turkey is similar in size and morphology to the, a second or third human toe phalanx. So you can get confused between a turkey and a human as well. Oh my god. How yeah. do you even find people if that's like what you're up against? You just like they are there's differences, but they're just similar. Yeah, so I think that's all we're gonna cover today, anyway. Um next episode will be I think G for Goff's Cave, I believe. But yeah. we're thinking we might do them every month, once every month now, because we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> um, mm. Surgery is a lot, so we're just going to try and do it once a month. But yeah, we'll just keep, we'll, we'll finish eventually. We'll get done eventually, today. Yeah. We will get there. Anyway, mm. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. Um, we'll see you next time. Um, bye. See ya. Bye. Thank you.